0: Welcome to A Legacy of Generosity, a podcast produced by the Leave a Legacy Committee of the Minnesota Gift Planning Association. You'll hear lessons learned, trends, and best practices from experienced gift planning professionals to help you succeed in increasing legacy gifts for your organization. We are grateful to our sponsors, the Minnesota Initiative Foundations. To learn more about the work they do, Visit greaterminnesota.net. Now, here are your hosts.
1: Welcome to A Legacy of Generosity, a podcast show of Leave a Legacy, Minnesota. Today's episode is titled, Taking the Mystery and Some of the Pain Out of Working with Legal Counsel. Leave a Legacy is an all-volunteer group committed to the growing the number of gifts made to charities through wills and requests. We do this by providing professional development opportunities to nonprofit staff and volunteers, such as this podcast. Uh, I'm My name is Carl Newbanks. I'm the Grants and Development Manager at the Initiative Foundation, and I am one of your co-hosts today.
2: And I'm Allie Schneider, the other co-host for today. I'm a plan-giving officer at Animal Humane Society, and we are so very happy to have Cheryl with us today. Um, Cheryl, would you be so kind as to share a little bit of your background?
3: Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Cheryl Morrison. I'm an attorney with the law firm of Lathrop GPM in Minneapolis, uh, formerly the Grey Plant Moody Law Firm. I personally have been practicing for almost 35 years in the area of trust and estates and nonprofit and charitable giving. Um, our firm is one of the um, has one of the largest nonprofit and estate planning groups uh, in town. And I'm here to answer whatever questions you have.
1: Well, thanks for joining us, Cheryl. It's just been a pleasure to kind of uh, chat with you a little bit as we, you know, kind of prepared for this episode and uh, just really looking forward to uh, kind of gleaning some information and some insights from you today. And if you don't mind, if I just jump right in, I know many fundraisers and gift planners hesitate to engage legal counsel uh, for lots of different reasons. but. You know, we know that every fundraiser and gift planner should be aware of when they need to secure the services of an attorney. And uh, I know we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but before any development officer could discuss a concern or an issue with an attorney, they need to know how to make that initial connection. So I thought we might start there. If someone's listening today and they've never worked with legal counsel before, how do they make that first connection?
3: Sure. Um, well, first of all, you can um, you know maybe talk to your board. Um, some members of your board may have connections with lawyers that they're willing to offer up as potential possibilities. Another potential area would be asking other nonprofits that either you might work with or be connected to or associate with in some way. There are also um, conversation-type um, websites out there that you might subscribe to. Uh, for example, the Minnesota plan giving council, which is now known as the Minnesota gift planning association. Um, you know, there's lots of folks there who work with lawyers and might be willing to share their connections with you. So those are some, um, pretty easy ways to tap in.
2: So when you first start to talk to an attorney. How far can you go into the process before you need to sign something like a contract? Or um, can you talk to an attorney on a one-off basis?
3: Um, Theoretically, it would be possible. But just as if you were trying to make a phone call to your doctor to get medical advice about your particular condition, your doctor is going to want to know what is your condition, what are your symptoms, what is your medical history, how have you reacted in, in other circumstances? So really needing to get sort of the full picture. So it's not uh, too simple to go too far, you know, very far in terms of getting advice without a lawyer really wanting to, to understand who you are, what's your situation, you know, what all is going on with your organization. You know, it might be possible to have just a very general conversation around, you um, You know, what does the law say, for example? Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can imagine there would be exceptions, there would be certain circumstances that might affect the application of that law differently. There might be gray areas. And so, really, a lawyer is going to want to get that kind of understanding of your organization before going too far. The other thing is that there are ethics rules that apply to lawyers. And one of those ethics rules is that the lawyer cannot have a conflict of interest. And so if it's a question, for example, about uh, a potential gift that is going to be made to the organization and the organization wants to talk about that with a lawyer and what are the potential traps, for example, um, it's possible that lawyer also represents the donor. And so there could be a conflict of interest that arises. So really, any time that a lawyer is going to be providing any legal advice to a potential client, the lawyer is going to need to run a conflicts check uh, to make sure that those kinds of conflicts aren't existing. And then really, you know, for the most part, other than just a really quick sort of summation of the law, the lawyer really is going to want to establish a a client-lawyer relationship so that the lawyer can um, confidentially and competently advise that client.
2: That makes a lot more sense to have a whole picture instead of just a little (laughs) snippet.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Cheryl, would you, would I be correct in saying that most attorneys would are open to having a a quick phone call if you're, if you're looking to discuss a certain gift and trying to sort out, are you a good fit for us and et cetera. It's not like you have to be afraid to call and just have this exploratory, you know, conversation, as long as you're not kind of, you know, like you said, kind of looking for free legal advice, so to say, because they've got to do some checking before they can give you that advice
3: right right yeah it's not uncommon that uh, we'll get a call and and we'll ask the the caller to identify you know kind of what's the situation and and what's going on and what are they looking for Um, and maybe we are even at that point willing or able to say you know either it's something we do something we don't do um, something we can explore and at that point we would you know maybe be able to give the the caller a bit of an overview of what the law is or what the considerations are. But then at that point, before we get too far into it, then that's when we would need to do the conflict check and, and really understand how we would be billing our time for it, et cetera.
2: Speaking of um, billing your time, can you give our listeners just a general idea of how much an attorney might cost?
3: Yeah, and, and you know, this can really range, you know, kind of across the board. Um, some types of projects, it, it just is impossible to do on sort of a fixed flat fee type um, engagement
0: mm-hmm. because there
3: could be too many unknowns one way or the other. And so um, for those projects, it might be an hourly type engagement. Um, for some projects, it might be a fixed fee. We just recently um, have worked with an organization where we're going to be helping them out with some some gift acceptance policies and then doing you know an hour or so of training of their board and staff and we were able to do that on a fixed fee type basis so it really depends on the project and then the other um, issue around that is the law firm itself what is it its rate structure for example in our law firm for example we're a you know a large downtown law firm um But we have many, many lawyers in the nonprofit group. And so we might have young people who are quite good, but their rates are going to be less than the more senior lawyers in that same area. And similarly, you might find a smaller law firm that has somebody who says they can handle your matter. And in a smaller law firm, they might have rates that are lower, but they might have less depth in their nonprofit knowledge and and competence to be able to respond appropriately to your project.
2: Interesting. A lot to consider. Yeah. And Cheryl, this kind of makes
1: me think about, uh, because you've mentioned, you know, whether or not an attorney is competent and the the scope of an attorney's experience. So maybe I might just ask, how do we know if an attorney is competent? How can we, are there ways we can kind of help figure that out?
3: Uh, yeah, there's some, you know, some suggestions I might make, um, you know, really press that lawyer on, on how much experience that lawyer has in the particular area that you're looking for. Um, if it's, you know, a planned giving question, you might ask that lawyer, how many charitable remainder trusts have you done? Um, you know, what's your, what's your area of, um, Concern, are you an estate planner or a nonprofit lawyer or somewhere in the middle, like what my practice is, for example? Um, And so, really, press that lawyer. You know, when you think about it, very large organizations, when they're looking at hiring a lawyer, they send out an RFP. They really want to understand, you know, who is the best fit for them in terms of knowledge and expertise, in terms of depth. So, for example, um, you know, is there just one lawyer at the law firm who does nonprofit work that may not be enough depth, given what the organization is looking for? So it's really, um, I think, a question of pressing those questions and then looking at things like, you know, what does the law firm look like? Is there are there people that can help support that person if needed? Are there other areas of law that the organization might be looking for? that that law firm can handle.
2: Cheryl, for anyone who might not know, can you explain what an RFP is?
3: Oh yeah, a request for proposal. Um, So many times, very large organizations, and we've responded to a number of these, um, from nonprofits who are looking for legal counsel. And they send out a request for proposal to a number of different law firms and ask those law firms to respond about you know, who their attorneys are, who might have the right expertise, what are those um, levels of competence and knowledge in the nonprofit area, what other kinds of law that, that firm practices that may be applicable to the organization. So it's, you know, it's a process, and they, they end up interviewing law firms to figure out who's the best fit, etc. So it's you know, every every nonprofit is not going to go through an RFP process, but if you're looking for a lawyer, you do want to do a little due diligence about um, who you're talking to and whether they're a good fit for you.
2: I was gonna say, so it sounds like it really depends on what you're looking for out of the attorney. If you're looking for more specialized, some um, more attention from the attorney, if they, like you said, if they have backup, so it's really. The nonprofit needs to ask a lot of questions and do a lot of research.
3: Right. And I think as part of that process, they will also learn a lot. So if this is the first time they're looking for a lawyer or they just haven't done it very frequently, they will learn a lot about, you know, even what needs they might have um, as an organization. So they might think they just have one project that they're looking to get some help with. But it may turn out that they will learn that there are other areas that they might need assistance with.
1: That's really good, Cheryl. Thank you. I'm thinking as we've been walking through this, you know, that we've kind of talked about how to engage an attorney. And we've talked a little bit about what the expenses might look like. And now we've talked about, you know, how can we make sure the attorney is a good fit, that there's the competency and experience that we're looking for. Um, Now, maybe let's walk through a few specific types of gifts. Uh, to just kind of say, if this happens, this is something that a nonprofit should consider bringing to, uh, to an attorney, and we'll just kind of get your feedback and your, you know, your experience on on some of these issues, if that's okay. Yep. So let's we'll, let's start with uh, complex types of assets that someone proposes to be gifted, such as, of course, real estate is like its own sometimes, but real estate, business interests, uh, just complex assets when someone wants to give those to an organization. Kind of feel like that's a good time to go talk to an attorney. Why would that be?
3: Well, there may be issues that the, um, the nonprofit should be thinking about or considering as they consider whether to accept that kind of gift or not. Um, those kinds of issues, for example, if, um, if it's a gift of real estate, as one example, um, there may be environmental issues that a lawyer would advise the nonprofit to look into and to potentially get a survey of. If it's residential real estate, we habitually are advising uh, nonprofits to have the property inspected, for example. Um, so mm-hmm. there may be some of these these legal and risk questions that the lawyer will want to advise the nonprofit about that they may not have thought about. Similarly, there could be, and this is true both with um, certain conditions involving real estate as well as business interests there may be sort of direct bottom line effects to the nonprofit for holding a particular type of asset that might generate unrelated business income, for example, that's taxable income to the organization. And some of the, the circumstances in which that applies can be very, very complex from a tax matter. And so depending on the type of gift, and certainly more so as the gifts get more complicated, Uh, There may be issues that the charity isn't aware of that they should be thinking about as they're thinking about whether to accept these gifts. And then similarly, while we are advising nonprofits not to give legal and tax advice to their donors, many nonprofits feel that they would like to be in a position to be able to alert the donor to an issue if the charity is aware of it. Uh, Many donors will approach a charity about making a gift and they may not have consulted their own tax and legal advisors on their own situation. And so many nonprofits will want us as their lawyer, for example, to even tag what might be issues for the donor that the donor needs to be thinking about. And again, we are not representing the donor or giving the donor tax advice. But the nonprofit really would like to be in a position of not ignoring issues that the donor might face, and and even as a service to the donor, to be able to identify, boy, are there areas where the donor needs to consult his or her own legal counsel to vet some issue. So, again, with more complex gifts, more of those kinds of issues will arise.
2: So, Cheryl, would there ever be a time that – a charity would receive a significant gift to them and they should talk to an attorney about that.
3: Yes, and and this is just an interesting area um, that I think many smaller nonprofits might not be aware of, but let's say that a nonprofit has um, applied for and received its tax exemption from the IRS, asserting that it's a public charity, meaning that it is publicly supported by you know, a sufficient number of donors such that it's not really beholden to, you know, a particular small group of large donors, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And if a donor is a public charity and classified with the IRS that way, you know, they have certain attributes and, and certain tax deductions can be taken by donors, making gifts to them, et cetera. So it the, the, the character of that tax exemption that they've applied for and received um, determines a number of tax consequences and operational requirements for the charity. But let's say that that same charity, um, which has public charity status according to the support it has received to date and, you know, and, and the sufficiently broad level of support, Let's say one donor comes in and wants to make a huge gift to that charity. That huge gift can throw off the the public nature of the support because it is sufficiently large relative to the overall finances of the organization and the overall annual support of the organization. And so if that's the situation that a charity finds itself in, it should think about and consult counsel about how does that very, very large gift relative to its other gifts could potentially throw that charity into a different tax uh, classification. And the different tax classification is that it could flip the charity to be something called a private foundation. And while a private foundation is still mostly tax exempt, um, if it does become a private foundation, then there are other operational and tax and excise tax requirements that the charity has to follow. And it may be that they've flipped to that classification without even thinking about it or knowing about it.
2: Is it basically that they had they would get a gift that would be so much that they couldn't spend that money in their fiscal year?
3: Uh, that's typically not the situation. It's just literally this test that the irs uses for whether you're publicly supported or not and if you're not publicly supported and you can't hang your hat anywhere else in terms of, of of available tax exemptions then by default you become a private foundation
2: interesting yeah yeah Cheryl, it's such a it's
1: such a great point that you raised because i think you know so many of us were we're out there we're fundraising we're we're trying to fund programs and causes that we believe in so strongly. And then someone comes along, you know, and says, oh, I believe in what you're doing and I wanna make this, you know, huge financial contribution. And we get so excited about that, Uh, but such a great time to engage an attorney, you know, so we could say, well, typically, you know, our our annual budget is $100,000 a year, but this person wants to give us $5 million. Is that gonna change anything for us? Uh, right. You know, right. And, and it's such a good a good point to raise that although we're excited about it, we need to really be mindful about if, if that gift is going to affect our standing. How about uh, how about restricted gifts? People, sometimes folks want to exert a lot of control over that gift and they want to really restrict it for certain uses. It, it seems to me that that's a good time to that someone that a nonprofit should come in and try and talk to an attorney about that as well.
3: Right. And I think, you know, restricted gifts and and honestly, these kinds of gifts are becoming more and more common Uh, for whatever reason. It just seems like donors are more and more interested in sort of having a voice in how their gift is used. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's generational. I think that, you know, folks in the older generations may have trusted charities more. I mean, sort of this institutional trust that um, is kind of a hallmark of baby boomers, for example. But I think some of the younger generations, you know, there isn't so much that level of trust and they're much more interested in either questioning or having a hand in how their dollars that they've gifted are used and applied. And so this idea of restricted gifts is not going away. And um, really there's a law in Minnesota that says, That if a charity receives a gift that is restricted by the donor, the charity has to follow that restriction. And then there's very narrow um, ways that a charity can get out of that restriction if for some reason the restriction doesn't work. So when you're Mm -hmm. looking at receiving a restricted gift, it's really, really, really important to think about at the beginning, before you accept the gift, to think about How could this go wrong? How could this particular use or this particular application of the gift somehow become obsolete or not not in the best interests of the organization? For example, let's say that the organization receives a large gift such that they're willing to name a building after the donor. Mm -hmm. What if the donor then um, becomes a convicted pedophile? Mm. Is the naming of that building still in the best interests of the organization? Probably not. And so, Minnesota law would say there are only very narrow ways that that restriction can be changed. And so, it's really important to be mindful at the front end of how the restriction is being defined, um, who has what um, authority over the restriction, and we recommend that the donor never have authority over the restriction. And and here's kind of a footnote, which is that if the donor can really control the gift, um, then the donor may not get a charitable deduction. It's entirely possible that the level of control is gonna endanger the charitable deduction for the gift as well. But Hmm. certainly from the nonprofit standpoint, the nonprofit would want to have really the strings um, to pull around Um, making changes, about administering the gift in light of its mission and, you know, its programs and all of that. And so for that reason, we really do recommend that there be a written gift instrument and that that gift instrument contain really all of the agreements, that there not be side conversations or side emails, but that, that that agreement really encompass any and every term of the gift and that that agreement really vets some of these issues. You know, what is the use? Let's figure out how we're describing it. Is there an alternative use that, you know, if if the original use becomes obsolete for some reason, is there an alternative use that's gonna be in the agreement? Or is the charity going to insist, and, and we promote this, is the charity going to insist that if there is a change somehow in circumstances, that the charity can reapply that gift to something maybe within the same same ballpark, the same area of interest, but that the charity can do that without the donor's veto power. Um, And so really restricted gifts, as I say, is going to be something that um, many charities are going to have to find themselves concerned with. And there should always be a gift instrument that deals with all of these issues.
2: You bring up a lot of good points, Cheryl. And like you said, I think those will continue to be very popular with the coming generations as they want to have some more um, input about where their gift is put to use. But that brought up another um, topic for me since I've seen a lot of restricted gifts in um, planned giving, which most of our listeners are a part of. So can you give some other examples of times when gifts from estates or trusts might need to involve an attorney?
3: Yeah. And, you know, a typical, you know, a a gift from an estate or trust is often simple enough that neither the, well, the charity really doesn't need to, to, you know, embroil themselves in a conversation about it. You know, a gift of $10,000 to the Humane Society that's unrestricted is really nothing that the Humane Society needs to be concerned about. Right. Um, It just will... You know accept the gift when it comes and there's no restrictions and there's just nothing to think about mm-hmm. uh, however if the donor wants to put restrictions on that gift to some purpose then I typically even if I'm re- you know uh, representing the donor I typically will recommend that the donor consult the charity about whether that restriction is something that's going to be workable and what kind of language the charity would prefer be in that document because Ultimately, the charity is going to be saddled with applying the funds in a way that works. For example, I'll give you an example we worked on where um, a charity was gifted money to fund a professorship um, at at the university. And it turned out that professorship, the way that the donor had constructed it, had all sorts of restrictions on what types of classes the professor had to teach,
0: hmm.
3: um, you know, content of, of that that particular donor was concerned about the content was fine, but the, the direction that the charity was going was that, um, the, the particular class that was determined by the donor that had to be taught was not a class that the students would take. It just didn't fit into their degree requirements and So ultimately, we had to go to court to get the restriction redefined in a way that would work for the charity to really administer. And, you know, and so that was something where had there been, you know, some discussion around how would this really work in real life, Mm -hmm. that would have been helpful. Um, It's also the case that even if, you know, so even if there isn't a restriction, it's just, you know, let's say that your charity is going to receive the balance of a donor's estate. Let's say that donor doesn't have family um, and really wants to leave your charity, all of their estate. In that circumstance, um, it's not as simple as a $10 check or a $10,000 check coming to the charity. You know how much a $10,000 gift is, right? It's $10,000 cash. Uh, If you're left the remainder of an estate or You know, assets of an estate, for example, let's say there's real estate. Your charity is going to have to figure out, you know, how do you accept that? Um, Are there problems with accepting that, like environmental problems? Or is it a case where your organization and you have a public duty to protect your assets needs to be asking questions of the trustee or the executor about? the timing, for example, is this estate going to take a year or is this estate going to take three years? Um, what are the expenses of the estate? Are they reasonable? Is it a case where we, as the organization who's going to receive, you know, the whole estate, you know, we have an interest in understanding how is that estate being administered and is that reasonable? For example, we handled an estate where, um, the executors charged fees that amounted to almost half of the estate. Wow. And they clearly were unreasonable. And so um, on behalf of the charity, we had to get involved in a court action in that case to protect the charity's interest in the estate because it was being whittled away Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. um, excessive or, or unreasonable expenses or fees. So,
2: well, and can I just say, Cheryl, I think all the fundraisers out there appreciate you encouraging donors to let us know about a gift, especially if it's restricted, so we don't have to deal with it after.
1: Uh, yes. Cheryl, how about gifts involving other legal documents? There's always a bit of a debate about pledges and are they enforceable? And then, of course, there's partnership agreements, recognition agreements, etc. cetera. Um, give us a little insight into involving legal counsel when some of those documents come up.
3: Sure. So um, it's, you know, this this area, as you can imagine, there's, you know, lots to talk about and we could talk for hours. But to pick a few of these um, for pledges, free legal advice is a pledge in Minnesota under the current law is not legally binding unless the charity relies on it. And so, you know, if a charity would want a pledge to be binding it makes sense to talk to a lawyer about how does that work what does that mean what should we say in the document etc um if you were getting a a gift of a partnership interest for example a partnership is governed by a legal document and that legal document defines what are the rights and obligations of those partners in that that association of the partnership and so if you were going to be getting a gift of an interest in a partnership you would want to understand what that document says. So for example, can you expect distributions from the partnership over the course of the time that you own it? If, if not, and if the charity might possibly have a unrelated business taxable income from that, mm-hmm. that operation of that partnership, how is the charity going to pay that tax? Or is the nonprofit going to be called upon to make further contributions to the partnership? Because there are often capital calls associated with partnerships, and, and depending on the operations of the partnership, so anytime there's sort of a legal um, underpinning of a gift that affects how the the owners of that operation function, and the charity is going to become an owner then that's something to really take a close look at.
2: I was also wondering, so many times um, there are people that are very close to a nonprofit, for example, board members or major gift uh, donors that might give a gift and could possibly um, expect something in return. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. So um, this raises sort of a whole host of, of concerns. First of all, you um, if the donor is receiving something in return for a gift, the charity has an obligation to give a receipt that states the the reasonable value of what the donor is getting in return from the charity. So there's this quid pro quo rule that the charity has an obligation uh, to disclose any um, benefit or property or interest that the donor gets as a result of the gift. And so that can get implicated in something like a bargain sale to the charity, for example, um, of a piece of real estate or something. But there may be some of these other issues that are, arise that aren't as obvious. And so, for example, there's a, a concept in the law involving public charities where if a, a substantial donor or somebody who is in a position to exercise control of the charity or influence over the charity, so somebody on your board or a significant committee or an officer or a major donor, and if, if somebody um, of that ilk gives you a gift, there is this concept of um, excess benefits And what excess benefit is, is um, there's a a bunch of rules in the IRS code that talks about when a donor and potentially the charity might be subject to excise taxes for engaging in transactions that they shouldn't be engaging in. Hmm. And for a public charity, this excess benefits idea is that if somehow as a result of a transaction, and it can be a gift transaction, if somehow there is a benefit flowing to the donor that is beyond what you know, the market would otherwise have have accorded to the donor, then this excess benefit rule might apply to the charity in accepting that gift or, or engaging in that transaction. So, for example, if the charity engages in a transaction with the donor and the donor's on the board, let's say... And the donor says, I want to you know, sell this piece of property to you, and I think it's worth a million dollars. And the charity says, great, we'll buy it for a million dollars. And it turns out it's not worth a million dollars. And nobody in their right mind would have thought it was worth a million dollars. That provided a, an excess benefit to the donor. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a gift. There wasn't a, quote, quid pro quo, but there was a transaction in which the donor benefited more so than the market would have given him. And there is actually a procedure in the Internal Revenue Code that would allow the charity to take advantage of a presumption that it didn't engage in an excess benefit if it does a certain due diligence type of review of that transaction. And so without getting too into the weeds on it, as if, if, if a charity or a nonprofit can really just be mindful of what they're doing, you know, the types of transactions they're entering into, the types of gifts they're accepting, um, and whether there is this notion that the donor is somehow going to be better off in some way than the donor would be if he engaged in that transaction with someone else. And that can cue the the nonprofit to say, wait a minute, should we be looking a little closer at this and maybe even going through this due diligence process, we need to um to, to you know sort of take ourselves out of that inquiry from the IRS.
1: Cheryl, such so much great insight and, and so very helpful walking through these different type of gifts and we really appreciate uh, you walking through those with us and uh, I thought we might jump down to another question here. Um, what about an organization that's just getting going on a plan giving program? How can an attorney help that organization?
3: Well, um first of all, you know we we typically recommend that the organization be thinking about what kinds of gifts it's it's thinking about accepting what kinds of gifts might it encounter um, and and putting together a policy around how it's going to evaluate whether to accept those kinds of gifts and what kinds of information from the donor the charity might need to ask for in terms of evaluating whether to accept those gifts. And so implementing a gift acceptance policy and then procedures around how to look at those gifts is really important. Um, if the charity is going to have an endowment, and not all nonprofits do, but um, if they are going to have an endowment, then they're going to want to have an endowment policy and, and, and forms for endowment gifts that um, they can use in those cases. You know, every charity or most charities are going to have or want to have um, an investment policy. And then reviewing these policies periodically is really important as well. And then oftentimes we will help charities out by then um, working with them to implement, you know, or, or to sort of have a group of forms that they can use that have, you know, the right kind of language in them or you know, think about different contingencies, or have, for example, this this ability of the the charity to change the use of a restricted gift if it's you know if it becomes um, impossible or impracticable or or not in their interest. Uh, similarly, we might, in in some occasions, set up training with the board um, mm-hmm. and the staff of the charities, you know, so that they understand, you know, what kinds of gifts, you know, might need closer scrutiny or what are the kinds of trusts that donors might be looking at talking to you about and how do they work? So the training and just kind of that education around what are the different kinds of planned gifts that they might be looking at. And, you know, the final way that we've, you know, kind of helped in, in ramping up these programs is that, you know, if if the charity is going to develop some collateral, you know, advertising for lack of a better word around these kinds of gifts and talking to their donors, we can help with, with you know, the language and the clarity and sort of the legal um, correctness of some of those things as well.
2: I can see the training for staff and board would be very helpful. Um, we have a variety of listeners that listen to this podcast from all sizes of nonprofit organizations. So if they come from a well-established plan giving program. How can an attorney help with
3: that? Many nonprofits we deal with feel very comfortable in handling sort of the, you know, kind of the run of the mill kinds of gifts, but there may be gifts that come along that they're not so comfortable with. So for example, um, what if our donor wants to give us a piece of real estate, um, but the donor wants to retain some use somehow of it? Or what if the donor wants to um, name us in a charitable remainder trust or a charitable lead trust? So there may be some of these more complex type of gifts um, that pique your curiosity and then pique your your sense of wait a minute we haven't dealt with this before or this might present an mm-hmm. issue or something like that where you, you know you you want someone to take a look at it. Um, and you know there may be something coming out of those conversations. For example, we're dealing with a charity right now where we're going to be talking with them further about business gifts, gifts of business interests, and what does that look like, and what kind of due diligence does the charity need to go through with that kind of that kind of gift. And we're going to be helping them put together sort of um, an educational. Material mm-hmm. for their staff, um, and you know, and some checklists that they can use when they're looking at these kinds of gifts, and and so sometimes these conversations lead to ways that we can help in streamlining processes, in maybe um, educating people mm-hmm. a little bit more on that kind of gift, or maybe opening up their their thinking about you know, can they explore these other kinds of gifts. So, you know, it may start from something pretty simple, but then we together identify, you know, something that the charity thinks is valuable to their future fundraising efforts that we can help with.
1: Cheryl, what are some other common areas outside of gift planning that lawyers can help nonprofits with?
3: You know, if a charity is kind of at the, the very beginning and they haven't even filed their exemption, of course, we can, you know, we can assist in that process. Or if they're somehow changing their, um, how they're doing things, that sort of thing. We often will help out with governance questions, um, you know, or structural questions. For example, where uh, we work with a charity that um, is going to be receiving a piece of real estate and there may be concerns about environmental um, issues, sometimes charities will set up a separate Wholly owned LLC to hold that gift. And so we can help, you know, structurally with how that charity accepts that gift. There may be areas that are not related to giving that um, lawyers can help with, and charities may be familiar with these things, but they may not. Um, you know, if they have real estate, then they may need to deal with sort of traditional real estate issues like leases or. Um, you know, uses or that sort of thing that that, you know, a law firm that might have real estate lawyers also um, can help with. There may be employment law issues that they come across, or there may be tax issues that affect nonprofits. And as we all know, lots and lots of tax changes have occurred over the last couple to few decades that affect nonprofits. And so working with a a lawyer who has insight on how any of those tax changes might affect a nonprofit might be useful as well. And then there might be sort of the, you know, the, the run of the mill changes around or reviews around just the organizational structure, its bylaws, its articles, trust instruments, you know, how it runs, that sort of thing. Um, And so there's there's lots of of ways in which a nonprofit really is a business. And so these business issues separate and apart from fundraising, which is different than a normal business, but Mm -hmm. separate and apart from those giving issues, the, the nonprofit really is a business. And so it will have issues around its business operations and dealings that it may need assistance with as well.
2: Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. I think you provided so much information and expertise on how we can partner with attorneys. And thank goodness this is recorded so I can go back and listen to all the parts and tidbits that you gave that piqued a question or brought up another issue that I never thought about and can keep that in the back of my mind when a donor brings up a kind of gift that they want to bring into our nonprofit so that we can do the best for our nonprofits' missions and for what our donors want to support. So, thank you so much, and it's been very helpful. And you provided a lot of good information. We always ask at the end of our uh, podcasts one question to our guest, which is, "What is the best advice you have ever received?"
3: Well, and as we talked about this, I decided this was the hardest question. Um, <laughs> I I have to say that I think you know it it really is. You know, live your life by what you want to see on your tombstone. <laughs> um, it's, it's not good lawyer. It's not bad golfer. It's, <laughs> um, it's mother, daughter, sister, friend. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, where I think that's, about, that's the best advice.
1: Excellent. And, such great advice and and cheryl i just want to echo what allison said so insightful today all of just the little uh, bits of information and, and and insights that you raised are so valuable to all of us and so we want to say thanks to you for joining us and taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the podcast today and we want to say thanks to all of our listeners thanks for li- tuning in to the legacy of generosity podcast and uh, hopefully you will be able to uh, Uh, log on and listen to us again soon. We release uh, episodes twice a month on the Leave a Legacy of Generosity, and hopefully uh, we will catch up with you again soon. Thanks again, Cheryl, for joining us, and thanks, Allison, for co-hosting. And with that, I think we'll sign off.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of a Legacy of Generosity podcast. If you like what you've heard, please click subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. For show notes and access to other free educational content, visit leavealegacymn.org and click Resource Library. Consider joining us as a member of the Minnesota Gift Planning Association for Networking and Comprehensive Education. And connect with us on LinkedIn to share your feedback. Make it a great day.